today is Rachel Wilhausen from the University of Texas, who's a specialist in the political economy of international investment and finance. And Rachel's work spans a lot of different areas, um, which is one of the reasons why we're excited to get to talk to her. Uh, she works in sovereign debt and uh, looks at the determinants of what sovereign bonds denominate as the currency of payment, looks at the structure of sovereign debt uh, from the perspective of someone who's interested in contracts, um, also looks at the role of political institutions, democratic governance um, in promoting sovereign borrowing. And we want to talk about uh, all of these topics with her today, as well as some others. But we want to start with a different strand of Rachel's research, which involves questions associated with foreign direct investment and the system of investor state dispute resolution that was set up to resolve disputes arising out of these investments. And, and I guess not that long ago, these fields, sort of sovereign debt on the one hand and investor state dispute resolution on the other, would have seemed farther apart than they do now. Um, you know, Sovereign debt investors go to courts, typically foreign courts, at least in the, the settings we're interested in. And direct investors have this separate arbitration system that we don't really need to think all that much about. And that that divergence is not really there anymore. Certainly, Argentina experienced a lot of um, uh, action and foment in the international arbitration world after its default in 2001. So we're especially excited to talk to Rachel about that system and why it's proven to be quite controversial. So Rachel, first of all, thanks so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about all these issues. And of course, Me Too um, uh, has a bunch of questions, but Me Too will be joining us a little bit later in the podcast. He has a slight conflict at the beginning. But um, maybe we can talk uh, first, Rachel, at a relatively high level with just a bit of background. Uh, can you just give us a little intro into the system of investor state dispute resolution? And actually, the, the subtext for my my question is that whenever I talk to sort of NGO people, they hate this system with a passion. And, and I've never really understood why they hate it so much. Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, um, in talking about this system to kind of newbie students, I often can raise eyebrows pretty quickly. <laughs> and there is a general backlash these days against the system. So Effectively, investor state dispute settlement, which was once more um, easily referred to as investment arbitration, um, is a system under which foreign market actors, mostly multinational corporations, but not solely, can sue sovereign governments in order to um, um, compensate for what the foreign investor, the claimant, sees as an unlawful property rights violation. And um, if and when the foreign claimant wins a pro-claimant ruling, they win effectively cash <laughs> settlement um, compensation from that sovereign government to the private company. So from a taxpayer's point of view, 
you could see, um, you could easily interpret this as your governments um, sending your taxpayer money to a foreign company. And so in that kind of casual language, you can see how the idea that foreign investors have special access to international law, and this is all mostly facilitated by, by up to 3,000 some international treaties that create this kind of spaghetti bowl of, of opportunities for foreign investors to sue governments. Domestic investors do not have access to this system and effectively governments can't sue back. So if and when the government, the, the host state claimant says, well, the foreign investor is making this claim against us, but we had you know, legitimate reason, the foreign investor engaged in corruption, for example, is often you know, part of the, the filings. Um, there really isn't recourse in, in the opposite direction. So this regime was built based on kind of the issue longstanding in how economic globalization works that capital sending countries so foreign investors or you know anyone sending acting in private markets sending capital from typically what we can think of as OECD or just to be casual rich countries to relatively less developed countries there's a reason those less developed countries open to foreign capital, right? We know all of these benefits of economic globalization. On the other hand, those are sovereign countries. They, uh, you know, want to be able to set their own regulatory policy. And that, that the term of art that we could think about is constraints on sovereignty that result when, again, a foreign company, a private actor, can pressure a host government to change its policy. And that's the other trick. The, the actual legal system is written down as all the foreign investor can get is, is compensation, monetary compensation. And that's what the legal system is intended to facilitate. What I've been looking into in some um, ongoing research uh, with colleagues Carolina Malek and Calvin Thrall is the fact that, you know, that might be what the law says, but in like nearly half of relevant cases, we can trace that the host government is actually overturning the regulation that was at dispute. So that is the whole point to repeat of the system is that foreign investors can get cash to pay them off for the property rights violation that took place in violation of an international treaty. The glory of the system was meant to be that the host state does not need to change its policy. That's, for example, different from how things work in, uh, at the WTO. But nonetheless, in reality, host states are changing their policies. So this is kind of all together, you could see from a that backlash to the system point of view that, wow, is this the way kind of we want the world to work the way we, you know, from a certain point of view, want um, uh, disputes to be resolved between foreign actors and sovereign governments? Okay, th this all makes sense to me um, from, from at least one perspective, but there's a sense in which it sounds like what the host governments and these NGO types hate 
is maybe two things. Or if I were really being sort of contentious or snide, I might just say like enforcement of rights. Mm -hmm. um, but less so, the, the maybe less cynically, the sort of discrepancy between the rights that foreign investors have and domestic investors. But, you know, like one could make a similar point about the foreign law, domestic law divide, which I know you've thought about a lot in sovereign bond lending, where, you know, at least historically, the holders of foreign bonds tended to be foreigners. Uh, that's less true today, but at least historically, it was true. And they had access to foreign courts. And, you know, they had different and more pronounced legal rights. And I have to say that my assumption is that if we think about the FDI world, the investors aren't bargaining for this arbitration system, then they're going to have dispute resolution provisions that call for litigation in foreign courts. And why hate arbitration so yeah, much, right? Like it's, it's why the forum rather than the fact that these pesky investors get to enforce their rights. I, that's a really nice way to put it. Why the forum instead of the, the principle of what we want to do, let's say is, is protect treaty rights. Um, so part of the idea from the kind of institutional designers of ISDS, and this really started in earnest with um, actions by the World Bank um, in the 60s. The World Bank set up ICSID, so many acronyms, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes. And you know this whole idea of suing governments took off not until really the 1990s. And today there are over 1,000 Arbit public arbitrations like this. The intention of the designers was to say two things. Number one, this, this institutional system is going to take settlement of disputes out of diplomacy. It's going to depoliticize that. And for so long, not, not just in FDI, but of course in sovereign debt and any kind of enforcement in the last hundreds of years, there's been law and then there's also been state to state actions. And so the idea of the foreign investors, home government, let's say the U.S. government stepping in and pressuring the, the recipient host governments to, you know, resolve this dispute, that has long been, you know, not seen as optimal from a lot of stakeholders in the system. So ISDS was supposed to stop that. It really hasn't. Uh, in, my, in my book in 2015, I traced out a variety of investor state disputes uh, with a focus, especially on Central and Eastern Europe. And, you know, there are <laughs> the governments, the, the diplomats, there are economic missions, you know, that diplomats are in, interested in the, in the investment possibilities for their national champions, let's say, abroad. So while the law, you know, it, is designed in a way to depoliticize in from a political science point of view, it just hasn't really operated that way. The other idea was that ISDS was going to be the perfect kind of forum because it would focus on this compensation point, which is associated with a term we could call efficient breach. Meaning that, yeah, there was a property rights violation, but we've made everyone whole as a result of ISDS. 
And therefore, there's no reason to be, let's say, scared of future investment in that country. And so therefore, having this institution and having treaty protections altogether should increase foreign investment. And that just is not true. <laughs> so many of my colleagues and I have done every statistical thing possible, Simone Biles-esque twisting around, and it's just really, really not true that this, this system and treaty protection for foreign investment um, causes more foreign investment. So those, I think, are the main arguments against the, the institution itself. I might also offer one more argument that is becoming increasingly prominence. And this relates actually to how this institution and the system has become not just about multinational corporations, but also about sovereign bondholders. Folks in actors in this area are, are seeing more and more the protection clauses in investment treaties, seeing them expanded. And there are normative disagreements about whether those expansions are an optimal point of view from kind of a social welfare point of view or from a sovereign government's point of view. And sovereign debt, I think, is, has been a, a trigger. You already mentioned in 2007, Argentina faced Italian bondholders who were filing these suits against Argentina under an investment protection treaty between Argentina and Italy. So Italians specifically had access to this treaty and could leverage the ISDS system uh, institution in order to promote their rights. There isn't this concept of double jeopardy, let's say. So there's not an idea that these, these bondholders are using this system instead of another system. And, you know, moreover, um, this has been recognized by the governments who are involved in disputes. I actually, in, in thinking about our conversation today, I just searched the public dispute database that's hosted by UNCTAD, uh, the UN Council on Trade and, De and uh, Development. And I just searched for the term sovereign debt in public cases. And actually, it only comes up, that term especially, in four cases, um, Argentina and then also uh, the Greece in 2013. But more broadly, I took a look at model investment treaties. So I mentioned there are thousands of these treaties. Um, it's a very, very crazy system, let's say. That's not exactly a technical term. But a lot of countries are writing what we call a model treaty. So they're trying to cut and paste pieces from their model into treaties. And um, I looked up some revisions. Uh, Colombia in 2017, for example, deliberately added in its revision, this treaty shall not apply to public debt operations. Um, and there's other examples where countries are, are trying to anticipate the expansion of ISDS institutions to areas that they didn't really intend it to, to go. That said, the US model bit from 2012 that's still in place specifically includes bonds and debt instruments um, in what counts as a protected investment. So 
that the concept of what this institution should even apply to, what the def definition of investment is, well, lawyers have had certainly a lot to say about this, and countries themselves are trying to reword their commitments to re-separate, if you will, FDI from sovereign debt. Rachel, um, I'm wondering whether we can sort of go back in time now, now that we know, uh, and if I've understood what you were saying and some of your work and that of your colleagues, the original idea of these treaties was that it would give countries, especially in the developing world, credibility in a sort of North and wine guest kind of way. Uh, we give them, give foreign direct investment in particular uh, means of enforcement. So I, I like the way you put it. And this was supposed to be arbitration and Mark will correct me since he knows arbitration so much better. But when I talked to the, the people who were the original enthusiasts, they, they said, you know, arbitration, is uh, judgments are much more easily recognized in courts around the world, so it's more easily enforced. Now, we know from the work of folks like you that we haven't gotten the bang for the buck that we wanted in terms of raising credibility or more concretely lowering the cost of capital for many of these countries. And so you would rationally think that we just tear up all of these agreements. Instead, uh, we've seen this massive expansion. One, we've seen mass massive expansion of these treaties. Uh, two, we've seen, I would say, an increase in the lack of care in the drafting of the treaties in that you know, sometimes they include stuff, sometimes they don't include stuff. I mean, Mark and I often write about how debt contracts that countries write with investors are full of mistakes. But if you go to the investment <laughs> treaties, they really do seem like cut and paste and not very much care in the cut and paste. So why is the system that doesn't work expanding as opposed to contracting? Why are they including bonds? So we had, we yeah. were looking at a bit for, I think, Singapore with some European countries and like they had include Euro, included European sovereign bonds in that and specific contract terms, but it was sort of this half-assed inclusion. It didn't make sense, <laughs> but yet it was yeah. signed and it went into place. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, I I, I gave a shout out to Colombia there in, in revising their 2017 um, model bit. But as you know, to the power dynamics of international relations uh, under conditions of economic globalization, you know, there's this phrase that always comes to mind, the race to the bottom. And in this context, that means you know, if my neighbor country with whom I compete for foreign capital, and of course, you know, in, in a world of scarcity, there is competition for foreign capital. If my neighbor country is signing these investment protection treaties, I need to sign them too. I, you know, my country, to take on the persona of a country, need to sign them too. Otherwise, foreign investment will divert 
And so even if these treaties aren't, you know, in reality working the way the designers want, there's been this, this concept of competition in the market for foreign capital that means everybody <laughs> ends up signing treaties. And this is what has gotten us to thousands of treaties in the world for a variety of reasons. Um, most of these treaties are bilateral, so BITS, bilateral investment treaties. And there have been a lot of crazy academic titles about a little bit will do you and bit by bit and things like that. In any <laughs> Rachel, case- Can I just interrupt yeah. you for a second? This is fascinating. Who's, like, whose interests are driving it? Is it that there's a bunch of diplomats out there who like to go to you know, yeah. treaty negotiations or, <laughs> I, I don't understand. Yeah, so Why there is, is yeah. There is a, an ongoing debate in among um, folks like me who study this. Um, one side of it, uh, especially um, epitomized by Lauga Paulson's uh, work, is that there's something called bounded rationality going on. And in a very kind of unfair shorthand, we might say governments uh, don't know what they're getting into. And they sign these treaties because it's nice to sign a treaty at a summit. And they seemed nice. And the idea of ISDS biting in the treaty that ISDS was included, you know, kind of was overlooked until claims hit. Now, I am more of the type to think, well, there's some rationality going on here. Um, and if you think about that, sort of a, just basically a cost benefit analysis approach, um, you know, really what countries would be doing in the back of their mind is evaluating the potential costs of the, of the enforcement bite of these treaties against what they see as the benefit. And for so many years, these treaties were touted as really beneficial and necessary to prove rule of law in your country, especially in countries, as, as you mentioned, where domestic institutions, domestic courts, you know, are, are just outside the, outside the realm of what foreign investors are looking for. So these were a cheap and easy way, if you will, <laughs> to provide a substitute for foreign investors while the domestic court system is ongoing in, in development and, and building credibility and things like that. The trick is about why they've spread so fast and, and why they exist in so, just so many overlapping planes in the world, overlapping treaties. Um, in work with my colleague, Clint Pinehart, we looked into just exactly how difficult it is for a country to extract themselves from this system. And that's part of the modern sense of globalization in which the headquarters of a country is not necessarily where it's incorporated and is not necessarily, well, it's clearly not where its subsidiaries are. And the nationality of the companies, um, if you will, companies have a lot of ability, especially the biggest investors in the world, to alter their nationality in order to access treaties. So if, for example, as I'm sure you're familiar, Venezuela, you know, has faced a lot of claims and they deliberately withdrew from the Dutch, um, their Dutch treaty commitments. Now there's sunset clauses and some complications. Nonetheless, Dutch treaties are kind of infamous for providing a lot of latitude to foreign investors. You know what? A lot of companies in the world can make themselves Dutch 
and you know, I've heard anecdotally from from lawyers uh, the idea of a Dutch mailbox or something like that. And so now built up in the system is, wow, if you want, you know, if you as a country want to get out of this thing, you have to withdraw from whole bucket of treaties and there are sunset clauses and if you withdraw from them in sequence you're still exposed to very multinational companies and so that the system is really stacked against the idea of of countries being able to withdraw it, Rachel is it also and we've we should probably go to to break after this, but I want to squeeze one more question in uh, if I can. So one of the things I, the complaints I hear and that I'm, I know that you have, uh, you have written about is the idea that there's something about investor state arbitration that enables, I don't know how to put this other than to say like the bringing of bullshit claims, Mm -hmm. like the, there's just a bunch of bogus claims being brought and the system allows investors to do this. And I, I mean, Whenever people talk about this, and, and of course it's a it's a standard complaint, usually that potential defendants and their lawyers make about basically any system for resolving disputes, right? Yeah. Um, so my my antenna always go up and and think that there's there's can't possibly be anything to these claims, but they're made they're made seriously and by a lot of people here. What do we know about the? kind of quality of the system and whether it enables investors to kind of use bad claims to extort money out of countries? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And I I agree that my antennas go up uh, about those issues. Now, from a political perspective, we could kind of put ourselves in the shoes of folks who are, you know, citizens in a given country and they see headline making claim and, and you know, in, especially in, in a lot of countries around the world, these things do make headlines. They, they get into governmental, you know, political campaigns and things like that. So you could see on a one-off if some foreign company is trying, you know, to extract money from your pocket as a taxpayer, that, you know, could be seen as a bogus claim and whether it is or not could affect public opinion and therefore affects, you know, government behavior. However, in terms of, you know, whether that trend is, is true or not, a lot of work on it from the academic point of view in order to test whether the, the idea, whether it's systematic has looked at the content of claims and the outcome of arbitrations and in work with Leslie Johns and Kelvin Thrall, we we really point to the idea that you can't use observed claims and arbitration outcomes in order to judge the merits of of claims. And in in particular, the idea that firms can claim things about under the term indirect expropriation. So it's not about Again, to be very casual, the military coming into your your factory and you know repossessing it, and that's it. You're no longer an owner. It's more about well, this regulation or this policy violates national treatment principles. You know, discriminates us against us as a foreign investor, et cetera. And those are the flavor of claims that folks have associated with being bogus. However, as I'm sure you know more than me, 
Um, there are trends in arbitration. There are trends in legal interpretations, even in this very decentralized regime. And so we can see that it's strategic on the part of lawyers have strategies, right? And lawyers have strategies as to which claims they're going to argue, which claims they're going to focus on. And arbitrators are strategic as well. If, you know, there's a violation of one of the claims and that triggers, you know, compensation, there's reasons not to rule on all the claims, things like that. So whatever we see in looking at as outsiders trying to, you know, figure out what the lawyers and arbitrators are doing, that's just not a way of seeing merits. Now, one idea that's being picked up more, and I'm starting to try and look into, um, although you know it's hard to see the data here, is the idea of third-party funding. So this is the idea that an investor can back a claimant, pay for, let's say, that the proceedings, and then if there's a win, the investor gets a, you know, a proportion of the settlement. You could think from an economic point of view that this is this could create efficiencies in the market for arbitration, if you will, but you can also think from a normative point of view, from the operation of ideal designs of institutions and enforcing um, you know, the investment treaties, and is it really optimal for market actors, third-party funders to be so involved in the selection of which disputes um, get to arbitration. So that, you know, is that a design that is the idea of market competition in, in, in the law, um, um, an optimal goal from some sort of social welfare point of view? And, you know, again, from the point of view of the citizen of the host state, if you see, you know, your newspaper headline with this kind of thing going on, that can also create unrest and protests in the street and really, you know, shake governments. And this, this is, like I said, this is not like hypothetical in Egypt and Latin American countries in the Czech Republic. They're, they're, these are parts of, of political campaigns, whatever the lawyers say, I suppose. <laughs> That was incredibly illuminating. Thank you. I, I just, the idea of optimality seems so far from this system that it's just very hard to even hear those words. <laughs> uh, we, should take, we should go to a break and then we want to move on to asking you about some of your other truly wonderful work, but this has been so illuminating. Rachel, I'm hoping we can turn a little bit to some of your other fascinating work. It's you, you just seem to have done so much interesting work that <laughs> well, educates um, <laughs> me and it educates Mark. <laughs> we were looking at the papers you've written. We're like, oh, did she just like look into our brains and say, what is it that they just don't understand or are confused about? I'm going to write about that. <laughs> but um, what, what, one particularly fascinating uh, topic that you have addressed is how countries deal with bondholders and sort of FDI type investments when they run out of money and they have to decide whom to default on. 
And I had always thought that, look, this is all the same because, you know, if I default on uh, a direct investment, it, it hurts my reputation as somebody who's willing to default. And if I default on a bond, it hurts my reputation. Now, there is this somewhat short-term perspective that if I default on one creditor, then I have more money to pay the other creditor. But in the sovereign context, hard to see how that is, is such a strong argument, given that the sovereign can just decide, I'm going to screw you all over. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your work, you found that this is first, that my understanding is you find that basically they don't treat everybody the same and that these are distinct categories and uh, that if the the bond investors don't really care that much if you screw over the FDI folks and maybe yeah. vice versa is yeah. that right yeah you know it's funny with the word reputation i i've gotten so jittery about using that word in my in my book that touches on these issues, I don't use the word whatsoever. So I just avoid reputation because I, I, as you're getting at, it would make sense as an outsider to say capital markets, money flowing across borders, stuff that happens to money, adverse stuff from the point of view of those investors should create a solid singular reputation. I just, really don't see that. Um, The idea about um, how, again, casually, as you were saying, when a government needs cash, let's say, and therefore looks around their society and economy and thinks, where should we get that cash? Um, If we can't roll over our debt, if if we don't have other external sources, if, if we're really constrained here, um, and foreign investors can be pretty attractive. They're not, you know, constituents of the government. And once they're invested, we know there's some sunk costs and things like that. There's a term, you know, the credibility of exit. Some investors, you know, you uh, violate their property rights. And even in that setting, it's really not credible for them to say, well, you do that and we'll run away. So in any case, there is a sense, you know, empirically as well, when you look through arbitrations, that governments go to the principle of taking cash from foreign investors. And so, as you said, it's possible that that action would send a negative signal to um, sovereign bondholders. However, in, in, in doing kind of the math here, I really find that when when an ISDS arbitration reveals, if you will, that the government just got a lot of cash inflow, there really is a a pro-government reaction in sovereign bond markets as measured um, by uh, secondary market spreads and in focusing on emerging market, or let's say emerging markets, frontier markets. So there's a differential reputation. And, you know, we could, we could play out a lot of approaches from interdisciplinary sources that would hint at this. For example, herd behavior in markets. Herd behavior, is it really about every capital actor? No, you know, portfolio investors or, or, you know, the idea of 
even short or long term, you know, day traders. And they, there's reasons to expect they interpret government actions differently when it comes to interpreting the political risk that that action suggests when it comes to their own investments. And maybe in, a, in an analogous way, um, in my book, I really think about the heterogene heterogeneity of political risk based on the nationality of the investor. So, you know, in a nutshell, I, I do a lot of uh, work in Central and Eastern Europe, and you maybe this is a nice way to capture it. You could think a, a Russian firm investing in Romania that has a dispute with the Romanian government, you know, might have just be dealing with a lot of different kinds of issues than a German firm investing in Romania. And so, you know, if you talk to like, you know, I did that, that the hypotheticals, local, you know, leader of the German subsidiary and, and the Russian subsidiary, they probably in a country like Romania, you know, hang out at the same expat bar or something. And, you know, they probably chat about, oh, this is, this is frustrating, but publicly, you know, that German company, German investors on the whole don't really have an incentive to, to, to act as if they're worried about that risk, right? Because there's so much about how economic globalization overlaps with international relations that we see more and more that firms are sort of a nice proxy for taking care of foreign policy issues, if you will. So to, to summarize then, if firms of one nationality really aren't gonna coalesce with or fight on behalf of, or, or change their investment strategies in ways you know, to punish the government in coalition with firms of other nationalities, then there's another place in which, um, in which what we might summarize as reputation, which gives me shivers, uh, is, is differentiated. And not to jump back to always pick on Argentina in this setting, but you know, Argentina faced claims um, by Italian bondholders in these arbitrations in 2007. Those were Italian bondholders. And you know, if, if I picked apart the case and I think chatted to people, my, my hunch would be the risks and relationships that that in, engendered between Italy and Argentina just aren't, you know, as salient to Spanish investors in Argentina or, you know, investors of other nationalities crossing over bond markets and foreign investment and things like that. So I think a way that folks in social sciences and law looking at what kind of what we would expect folks who are in it to make money, <laughs> again, a casual way of saying what investment is about. Um, you know, we need not assume that they're all of one type. And I think the more we can see and theorize and realize the variation in these types, the more it's, it's, it makes sense to see, you know, where political borders, where sovereignty continues to matter. There's this overall worry that's been longstanding, right? It's been well articulated um, by activists to say, you know, political borders, countries don't matter anymore. There is a reputation with the market and the market can dictate outcomes. Now, I, I don't think that's totally wrong. Um, and I have, you know, normatively, you know, troubling to me found examples of that. However, on the whole, there's, there are still countries in the world. <laughs> there are still sovereigns and 
there's very, they can have some autonomy in, in, in sending different signals to different kinds of market apps. It, can we, I, I just want to link this point to some, another part of your work. I mean, can we, which has to do with the extent to which liquidity in financial markets uh, affects investor perceptions of risk. I, th- I think you can recharacterize it if I'm not, if I'm not characterizing that, it correctly, yeah. but that's, that's sort of how I think about it. And like, is, so we know that at least I think we know what, what you, some of your work has taught me that is that investors are not particularly attuned to risk when there's tons of liquidity in the system. And I wonder if that's true here as well. I know you, you hate the term reputation and I, I sort of understand it because it's like, it, it's like, you know, it's so vague and generic that it's like tempting to invoke it just when you don't understand the concept, um, which is how I invoke it at all times. But like, <laughs> might we, might investors be more sensitive to these signals in times of low liquidity so that a default on one type of investor or one nationality investor might be viewed as more troubling than in the time when investors are just falling all over themselves to to give money to to countries. I I really like how you put that. And to to add another piece of jargon to this, I might think about the arguments I was just making about heterogeneity and then adding on the layer of, of salience. So yeah, heterogeneity exists if we all, you know, agree that I've proven that. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, the, the idea as to salience of those heterogeneous risks, I, yeah, in, in work, especially with uh, Lena Mosley and Cameron Ballard-Rosa, we, we've looked at to the idea that the salience of all this political mumbo jumbo <laughs> changes when investors have a lot of cash on hand and are looking for looking for good investments in, in whatever kind of financial market. Um, so the way we look at this uh, when it comes to sovereign debt is to say when US Treasury rates are high, there's you know some reasons, more incentive to keep your cash or investments in the US. And whether you're, you know, an American investor or whatever nationality of investor, and so when there's this incentive to stay in in a safe AAA rich kind of investment pool, then there's more competition for capital, if you will, in developing countries, in the countries exactly that we're we're talking about here, where political risks have traditionally, you know, been been most salient. So in an environment of increasing competition, you could imagine that power shifts to the investors and they're more sensitive to the marginal benefit of investing here versus there. And on the other side, the the country is more sensitive to the idea of we got to prove ourselves here versus there, if you will, because this marginal, you know, the last um, fancy dinner that we're able to take someone out to. Okay, that's probably illegal, but let's say the last investment incentive we're, we're able to offer could really make the difference in attracting this capital. So in political science, this argument 
speaks to a kind of classic debate about whether investors or financial markets in general like democracies more or less than non-democracies. Um, on one hand, democracies are associated with property rights, with rule of law, with, with commitment to enforcement. On the other hand, democracies are instable and they have policy instability. Governments turn over, there's partisanship that can affect market outcomes. So are you know, those benefits of democracies, the net benefits seem you know, empirically to outweigh the net costs. The idea that property rights and enforcement is just more reliable in democracies. We found that that becomes, if you will, more salient in determining where investors are putting their cash exactly in times when there's more competition to capital, which one can capture by saying there's more safe havens. And so in actually this connects all the way back to why sign investment treaties, why participate in this regime, and why do we see, for example, so many autocracies, so many non-democracies signing these investment treaties, signing contracts with foreigners. <laughs> um, and here, again, we could think of the idea that we got to keep up with the neighbors. We as an autocracy are, are pretty, you know, uh, relatively risky to foreign investors. So our commitment to these kinds of treaties, and even given all their flaws, is, is going to be a net benefit in, in attracting that, you know, marginal extra dollar of, of capital. This is this is this is incredible. It, it sort of reminds me of uh, so many different threads. But one of the one of the threads that now I have to go back and look at in a different light is um, has to do with archival work that Mark and I did many many years ago in the Rothschild archives uh -huh. in London, where we came across. I'm not sure if Mark was there this day, but um, he was probably looking at the real work we were supposed to do. We I believe I was in Guildhall this day. But yes, yeah. The, um, we came across these letters from the Rothschilds to the, the Brazilian emperor about how, you know, they thought this was a good time to get rid of slavery because investors, you know, thought that that, that would be, th th this would be appropriate timing. And I thought, okay, was it a high liquidity time or a low liquidity time? Well, My goodness. Talk yeah. about, wow. I mean, so normatively these days, we usually think of constraints on sovereignty as, as equivalent, like being equivalent to, you can't have environmental laws, you can't have labor rights, et cetera. But you, wow, you're talking about foreign foreigners market pressure to to get rid of slavery. Yeah. My goodness. I mean, I don't wow. know if it was real pressure or just, you know, it was just right. like a letter by Rothschild yeah. to the his their friend the emperor. Um, yeah. but but Rachel, I I know we've used up way too much of your time, but I I I, I beg your indulgence that we ask um we'd be able to ask one last question slash set of questions. Of course. Uh, I am yeah. fascinated by your interest in sort of, I don't want to call them quasi-sovereigns, sort of uh, marginal sovereigns, mm. uh, the territories and Native American tribes. And I have, and Mark has, uh, we have both been very interested 
in these marginal sovereigns and how they interact with the capital markets. But we find it near impossible to get uh, data on what's going on, to find people to talk to about this, to actually find the contracts. So we'd love to hear anything you're willing to tell us about your interest in this topic and um, how you go about actually doing research on it. Yeah, well, that's it's a great point that it's hard to find like the kind of data that's easier, you know, we can get from Bloomberg in, in other settings. And I think that relates to one of the kind of foundational political issues that these, I, I've also had trouble thinking of the proper term late. I've been thinking of economic semi-sovereigns, right? Because there are these units in what we would call a hierarchical power that aren't federal units, they aren't states, um, so they're not exactly, you know, not sovereign and, you know, they also can be sovereign. Um, and there's a lot of churning, right. in in these relationships, but there's also a lot of stability. So I actually, I'm sitting here looking at a world map where I put, I tried to put, you know, pins in all of the, all of the spots on the map where there are these actors that can play off, if you will, or switch between their, sovereign and their status and their ability to sort of partially waive that. And that's a phrase I learned from folks and uh, American Indian um, communities, partially waiving sovereignty in order to especially borrow uh, on, on private markets. So there you can literally, you know, set up a contract in which um, what is traditionally, you know, for a lot of reasons, thought of as, as separate from, from the tribal governments, um, like casino revenues especially, they can set up you know, a legal situation in which that those kinds of revenues can serve as, as collateral, if you will. Um, and so partial waivers of sovereignty open up this entire space for kind of similar economic semi-sovereigns to take advantage of markets, um, market prices and kind of set aside that willingness issue that sovereigns all, always face. So, but as you said, it is hard to find, you know, a, a, a file of, of these kinds of um, deals. And circling back to what I had started with the political side of this, part of, you know, the, the benefit of semi-sovereignty is something that I've heard in the American Indian community, the phrase data sovereignty. And, the idea that part of being sovereign means we can be private, means we as our community, as our political entity, don't have to be transparent, is really a powerful movement and, and a powerful kind of phrase that I've heard from folks, you know, on the ground know this kind of phrase, the idea of data sovereignty. And so the fact that data is not public, I see as a kind of um, a data point in itself about the strategic properties of this. And there also is kind of markets by which there's tribe to tribe lending in, in the American Indian context. Um, some tribes are relatively richer than other tribes. And from what I've heard, you know, in talking to people, again, you know, there's not a basic willingness to share terms, but there are terms of these. So 
these are not grants or things like that. Like there is, there are market terms. Um, and here we can think about the role of identity and, and, and other ways to mitigate risks that, you know, Wells Fargo or, or Goldman Sachs or any, any kind of potential outside bank or, or, or a bondholder, um, you know, would, would worry about in, in lending to, to tribes. So maybe I could throw it out there together with, <laughs> with the two of you that if there are folks in these communities um, who would like to talk, I think there are points of, you know, mutual benefits and where, you know, folks like us could, could provide some benefits directly to tribes in, especially, for example, looking at the costs of these trade-offs. Um, how, what literally is the dollar cost when you choose this kind of financing versus the other and politically speaking you know what are the what are the political implications of exercising sovereignty or you know not exercising sovereignty but I, I think the principle of recognizing that there are so many units in the world that rely on lending you know they don't have access to IMF bailouts right Puerto Rico is a you know prime example, as you two know about more than me, like they don't even have permanent access to US bailouts, right? They are neither a country nor a state. And I've been really impressed, anecdotally at least, speaking to folks who know this and, and are finding really creative ways to kind of trade off and, and benefit from what not what you know for many communities is far from an optimal political status to nevertheless take advantage of that. So anyway, just, just to repeat a shout out, I think there are potentials for um, academia and, and the, our kinds of expertise um, to, to provide mutually beneficial um, work here, but it's really a fascinating area. And, you know, a shout out to all those, those folks and tribes who have figured all of this out. I, it's just fascinating to casually chit chat and say, yeah, there's this whole network of lending. So pretty cool. Well, Rachel, thank you. We've taken up a, a bunch of your time and I know you've got to, to get off to another meeting, but we really appreciate you coming on and um, at least giving us a, a bit of time to talk about the really wide ranging research that you, that you do. Um, we, this is only scratching the surface. So hopefully we can continue these discussions going forward. But uh, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.